Let's continue our new summer series called Dear Church, the Book of Revelation. And the title of today's study is Come, Let Us Adore Him, uh, based on Revelation chapters 4 and 5, a Christmas title for Father's Day. Now, worship means to ascribe worth. And John Orkberg writes, I need to worship because without it, I can forget that I have a big God beside me and live in fear. I need to worship because without it, I can forget his calling and begin to live in a spirit of self-preoccupation. I need to worship because without it, I lose a sense of wonder and gratitude and plod through life with blinders on. I need to worship because my natural tendency is toward self-reliance and stubborn independence. Uh, Francis Chan writes, many spirit-filled authors have exhausted the thesaurus in order to describe God with the glory he deserves. His perfect holiness, by definition, assures us that our words can't contain him. Isn't it a comfort to worship a God we cannot exaggerate? And then Matt Redman, who wrote the uh, loved uh, praise chorus, 10,000 Reasons. Uh, he writes, the revelation of God is the fuel for the fire of our worship. Now today's message is in three parts. The first third is going to be Revelation chapter 4. And the second third will be Revelation chapter 5. And then the final third of the message, uh, based on uh, Revelation chapter 5, I want to talk about Juneteenth. Uh, today, Juneteenth, and the upcoming Supreme Court decision, Dobbs versus Jackson, which has possible uh, implications for Roe versus Wade. But first of all, let's start off with chapter 4 of Revelation. Those in heaven worship the Creator. They worship the Creator on the throne, is Almighty God. Uh, Revelation 4, verse 1, after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had heard first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby. Now this word throne is used 14 times in just the 11 verses of this chapter. And the one on the throne is God the Father, because God the Son approaches the throne in chapter 5, and then God the Holy Spirit is pictured before the throne in verse 5 of this chapter 4. It says that encircling the throne was a rainbow. Verse 3, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Now this rainbow was a complete circle, uh, not merely an arc like we're used to, because in heaven all things are completed. And the rainbow reminds us of God's covenant with Noah, uh, symbolic of his promise that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. Now judgment is about to fall, but the rainbow reminds us that God is merciful even when he judges. Usually a rainbow appears uh, after the storm, but here we see it before the storm. It says, surrounding the throne were the elders, uh, verse 4. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold 
on their heads. Now these 24 elders uh, symbolize all believers, all followers of Jesus. There are 24 either because there were 24 divisions of priests in the Old Testament, or it could be 24 symbolically uniting the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, believers with the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament plus the 12 apostles in the New Testament for a total of 24. And then it says, from the throne came storm signals of the storm of the coming judgment. Verse five, from the storm came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. These storm signals are a sign that judgment is coming. It reminds us of the thunders and lightnings on Mount Sinai when God appeared to Israel in the wilderness. And then it says, before the throne, there were lamps, a sea, and living creatures. Uh, verse six, also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. Uh, it says they were covered with eyes, says that nothing on earth is hidden uh, from their sight. Now, uh, it goes on to say in, in, in the next verse, in verse seven, the first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. And the fourth was like a flying eagle. And some uh, Bible teachers believe that the four creatures represent the four pictures of Jesus that we have in the four gospels. Uh, Matthew is the royal gospel of the king, illustrated by the lion. Mark emphasized the servant aspect of the Lord's ministry like an ox. Luke represents Christ as the compassionate uh, son of man. And then John magnifies the deity of Christ, the son of God, as uh, the eagle. Now these beings, which were glorious beyond human uh, conception, served no other function than to extol the character of God. It says in verse eight, each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then they direct their praise to the throne. Uh, verse nine, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne. In the time of the Roman Empire, if a country was conquered, the conquered ruler would take off his crown and would place it at the feet of the conqueror. And so when we worship God, we make our own honor nothing in comparison with God's honor. It says in verse 11, and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So in chapter four, those in heaven worship the creator. But now in chapter five, those in heaven worship the redeemer. Um, it says in, uh, because of, of who he is, is the first reason why they worship their redeemer. 
uh, because of who he is. Uh, Revelation 5, verse 1, Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. I wept and wept, John says, because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Uh, the scroll is like a Roman will uh, that could only be opened by the rightful heir. It's the only one that could open that uh, will was, uh, was the one it was for. And it's in the right hand of God on his throne. So no mortal is strong enough to open it. But then comes Jesus. He's the Lion of Judah, which symbolizes dignity, sovereignty, uh, courage, and victory. He's the Root of David because he's from the line of King David. And then we worship the Redeemer because of where he is. Uh, he's in heaven. He's at the throne in heaven. He's not in the manger. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not on the cross. He's not in the tomb. He's in heaven right at the throne of God in the midst of heaven. It says in verse 6, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits or the sevenfold Holy Spirit of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. John turns. He hears somebody's here that can open the scroll, and he thinks he's about to see a powerful superhero. But instead, he sees a helpless lamb. And not just any helpless lamb, a slaughtered lamb. A lamb, a helpless lamb who had been slain. Plagues are about to fall on a disobedient world. But just like the blood of the Passover lamb in Egypt delivered the Israelites from the plague of the death angel, so the blood of Christ will save those who have received Christ from the coming judgment. And here's the central paradox of the book of Revelation and of the Christian faith. Jesus conquered, not by force, but by his death. Not by violence, but by martyrdom. And then another reason we worship the Redeemer is because of what he does. When the Lamb came and took the scroll, the weeping ended and the praising began. It says in verse 8, And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls of full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Let's just hold it there. Can we hold on verse 8 for just a moment? Uh, back to verse 8. The prayers of God's people. Do you ever take prayer for granted? Boy, I do. 
I just kind of go through the motions sometimes, don't think about what I'm really doing. But just think about that for a moment. Your prayers, when you talk to God, it is like incense in golden bowls in heaven. And these are the prayers of God's people. The prayers of God's people are offered up in these golden bowls, up before the throne of God in heaven. I don't know about you, but it makes me want to take my praying a little bit more uh, seriously. Now we go on uh, to verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Now, what kind of song uh, did they sing of worship in heaven? First of all, it was a worship song. They sing, you are worthy. It was a gospel song. You were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons. Uh, it was a missionary song from every tribe and language and people and nation. It was a devotional song, a kingdom and priest to serve our God. It was a prophetic song, and they will reign on the earth. Craig Keener writes, Indeed, early Christians networked across the Mediterranean world Apparently, the only religion in the early Roman Empire that developed trans-regional organization. Different barriers are relevant to people in different locations. But the basic point is that we must transcend all these barriers if the world is going to receive a foretaste of heaven through watching Christ's body among all peoples. And then we worship him because of what he has. He has power. Wealth, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and praise. In verse 11, then I looked up and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor, and glory, and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that is in them, saying, to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be praise, and honor, and glory, and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Now, with the time that we have left, uh, let's go back uh, to verse 9. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Uh, this fourfold uh, formula, sometimes in a different order, but those four things together, describing all peoples, um, tribe, language, people, and nation, 
It occurs seven times in the book of Revelation. It's a major theme in, in, in this book. And that last word, which is translated as nation, comes from the Greek word ethnos, from which we get our word ethnicity. People from every ethnicity of life and people from every stage of life. Uh, that is why our church is pro-life from the womb to the tomb. Now, as a church, we, we normally don't get involved in politics unless it is something that the Bible clearly teaches. There are some things that the Bible clearly teaches that have political implications. Those things we will get involved in. Uh, there are things like, for example, racial reconciliation. And uh, another example is the sanctity of human life at all stages of life. Now, these are things that the early church uh, was, was known for. Historians tell us that people uh, of that time were amazed at how diverse ethnically the early church was. They, they, they were amazed by all these different groups of people that didn't seemingly have that much in common uh, because they had Christ in common with each other. They were in one church uh, together. And, and the people of the Roman Empire marveled at that. Uh, early Christians were also known uh, for being against abortion and infanticide, which were common in the Roman Empire. And they were known for being proactive when it, come, when it came to adoption. They would go out to where children had been abandoned, and they would find these children that had been abandoned, left to die, and they would take them into their homes, and they would adopt them and raise them as their own. Uh, you know, from a personal viewpoint, racial diversity and adoption have been a part of Kimberly and my experience uh, with our extended family. Uh, my parents had 11 grandchildren, uh, six of whom were adopted. Uh, Kimberly's parents had 13 grandchildren, nine of whom were adopted from uh, places like Vietnam and Korea and Colombia and Mexico. So both racial reconciliation and the sanctity of life have also been something that our church uh, has prioritized. Now, let me give you an example of this. For example, in January, most churches uh, remember either Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday on January 15th, 1929, or they celebrate the sanctity of life uh, Sunday, which uh, remembers the passing of Roe versus Wade on uh, January 22nd, 1973. So most churches honor one of those or the other, but usually not both of them. Some churches do one, some churches do others. We're a church that remembers both and that honors both and remembers both with equal enthusiasm. Uh, which I believe is totally appropriate because Dr. King was strongly against abortion because he believed that it was a form of genocide against people of color. Now, some will point to his receiving an award from Planned Parenthood in 1966, but that award was for his promoting uh, contraception. He was very pro-contraception, but he was against abortion, like I am as well. Very pro-contraception, believe in it, 
but not pro-abortion, against abortion, pro-contraception. And that's what he got the award for from Planned Parenthood in 1966 for his work promoting contraception. But believe it or not, Planned Parenthood, at least publicly, uh, was still anti-abortion in 1966. As recently as 1966, Planned Parenthood, at least publicly, I don't know about privately, but at least publicly, was uh, very uh, anti-abortion as recently as 1966. Uh, Dr. King's niece, Alveda King, um, is going to be part of the 4th of July Unity Walk that our church is going to be a part of here in Pomona. And the unveiling of the statue of Harriet Tubman is going to be right in front of my house. We live on the south side of Lincoln Park uh, here in Pomona. So in Lincoln Park, Abraham Lincoln Park, is going to be the statue of Harriet Tubman. And uh, Alveda King is, is going to be a part of that unity walk and the unveiling of that that our church is going to be a part of. And she is an outspoken pro-life advocate. So we are a church that remembers both Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday on the second weekend of January, and we also remember Right to Life Sunday on the third weekend of January, and we equally push both of those equally with equal enthusiasm uh, for both of those remembrances. Now, depending on your life experience, depending on my life experience and your life experience, one of those two, Sanctity of Life Sunday or Martin Luther King um, weekend, one of those is probably, based on your life experience, going to come more naturally to you uh, than, than the other one. Um, and then one may not come as naturally uh, as the other one. But I want you to know, as my church family, as your pastor, I honor you for this. I honor you for being a part of a church like ours. I know it's not always easy, but I honor you for that. In a time of great polarization in our nation, I honor you, Purpose Church, for being part of a church family that will stretch you at times and that will annoy you on occasion. Raise your hand wherever you're sitting there in your living room or at your computer. If you've ever been annoyed by being a part of this family, this diverse family of people from different backgrounds, of different uh, ethnicities, of different stages in life, of different generations, uh, uh, it's hard. And, and, and some things that we celebrate will come more naturally and easily based on our uh, life experiences than other things will. But I honor you, and I praise God for you because you're willing to hang in there when so many are fleeing to the poles, or flee, uh, to polarization, um, not the polls voting, although we should be voting as well, but when people are flowing, pushing towards polarization, one extreme or the other, I praise God for you being willing to hang in there with a church where because of our diversity, um, diversity of, of life background and experience, we will be stretched at times, and it will be difficult at times, but I believe it's what God intends. I believe it's what the body of Christ was in the early church, and I believe it's what God intended the body of Christ uh, to be today.
So with that background, let's talk about Juneteenth uh, today, uh, June 19th, and the upcoming decision on Roe versus Wade, because I believe that these two events are just different sides of the same coin. Uh, Juneteenth is about valuing all ethnicities and the upcoming Supreme Court decision, Dobbs versus Jackson, is about valuing all stages of life, including that of the unborn. Specifically, in this Supreme Court case, uh, after the first 15 weeks of pregnancy, uh, when a baby is the size of a pear or an apple, uh, that baby can suck its thumb, it's developing taste buds, and it already has had a heartbeat for almost three months. All of that just at 15 weeks, which is what the Supreme Court decision is, is considering. Now, Juneteenth commemorates the emancipation of enslaved African Americans. Um, it's the commemoration is on the anniversary date of June 19, 1865, when Union General Gordon Granger proclaimed freedom for enslaved people in Texas, which was the last state in the Confederacy with institutional slavery. And so when he announced it there in Texas, it was done. It was complete. The emancipation had been proclaimed everywhere. And I just think that there are so many parallels as you look at history between being pro-choice on slavery in 1865 and being pro-choice on abortion in the year 2022. Um, first, I do want to say, let me remind you that if you've had an abortion, God's amazing grace is available for all of us, whatever may be in our past. God loves you so much. He loves you so much. He forgives you. His amazing grace can cover whatever we have in our past. As a matter of fact, the greatest hymn of all time, Amazing Grace, was written by a former slave trader, John Newton, a former ship captain uh, dealing in, in, in slavery. When he came to Christ, he left that profession behind and wrote the words to that beloved hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now, if you look back, uh, historians, and if you study this, historians tell us that there were five uh, major arguments people used to defend slavery. Have you ever wondered, how, what, what were they thinking, and how could people defend slavery back in 1865? And, and these five major arguments show to us the similarities between being pro-choice on slavery in 1865 and being pro-choice on abortion in the year 2022. Here are the five uh, of, the, of, of the major arguments that were used back then. Number one, they would say slaves were not fully human. Uh, there was even this horrific thing called the three-fifths compromise in which slaves were considered three-fifths of a human being. But today we see uh, where the unborn are not considered to be fully human. Um, in 1865, uh, the argument would be, slaves are my property. This is a personal decision. Leave my property alone. They are my property. And today we say that unborn child is not a separate human being, but it's part of my body. Um, a, a third one is they would say back then, 
something along the lines, if you don't believe in slavery, don't own one. Okay? If you don't believe in slavery, well, don't, don't own, a, own a slave. But don't tell me not to own a slave. The same argument is used today. If you don't believe in abortion, well, then don't have one. Uh, fourth argument back then was economic impact if freed. What would it do to the uh, economic well-being of, of the slaveholder if the slave was free? And today the same argument is, is there. What will be the economic impact on that person if, if they have a child and, and, and don't abort that child? And then the societal impact if freed. Uh, a major argument back then is the, the anticipation that if all the slaves were freed, there would be widespread unemployment and chaos. And the same argument is used today that the societal impact of all those children are allowed to be born, uh, what will be the impact um, on our economy? Will there be widespread unemployment and will there be chaos? But that is why today, we remember Juneteenth. Uh, today, we remember Juneteenth and what it represents. And why, Lord willing, on some day in the hopefully near future, um, we will remember that Roe versus Wade was reversed. And I just want you to know that I'm uh, praying for that day when, like Juneteenth, value was given to all ethnicities, that there will be a day that will come in the near future when value will be given to human beings at any stage of life. I remember the first bumper sticker my parents ever put on our car. We never had bumper stickers. The first bumper sticker they ever put was shortly after Roe versus Wade back in the 1970s that simply said, pray for the end of abortion. And uh, uh, I don't believe that if Roe versus Wade is reversed that it, it will end. It's an ongoing challenge. And so much heartache and, and so much heartbreak uh, connected with this subject. But a step in the right direction would be this Supreme Court decision, Dobbs versus Jackson. And as your pastor, I invite you to pray with me for that as well. Um, let's close our time together with this Father's Day prayer. God, you are my Father. Because of the sacrifice of your Son, because of your grace and mercy, and forgiveness of my sin. Speaking as your son on Father's Day, I've come to ask you for help for the son you've given me. Please make him hungry for wisdom every day. Cause him to quickly lose his appetite for the foolishness of the world. Help him to recognize your power in all that you've made and to grasp the meaning of love you showed him on the cross. Give him the courage to escape the sins that will trap him and the pride that will blind him to his need for you. Bring him to the moment where he will fix his eyes on Jesus and begin to run the race you've marked out for him. Thank you for making a way for my son to be your son. 
Help him to become the man you mean for him to be.